You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Danla Odufai, as she had been called in the Green Mother Country, where the rocks pierced the grasslands the way gaunt collarbones pierced the peaceful, slumbering corpses in the streets, recalled what it felt like to be hungry, to long for thick brown bread with salt, to taste pipe smoke on her tongue as if it were solid charred beef, to find mushrooms in a tree stump and sell them for whiskey, not out of recklessness, but because mushrooms could barely touch her appetite, while a pint of whiskey might help her forget her ravenous belly for an entire day. With care, maybe two. Dunla Duffy, as they called her in New York City, remembered Ireland with a fondness that lingered like the mists which used to flinch away from the doorstep of her hovel when the stern sun rose, because Dunla Duffy wasn't hungry anymore. These days, Dunla was starving. Lindsay Fay is the author of Dust and Shadow, The Gods of Gotham, and Seven for a Secret. Her new novel is The Fatal Flame. Thank you for joining me, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. These novels, the three novels especially in the Timothy Wilde series, that's The Gods of Gotham, Seven for a Secret, and The Fatal Flame, are set in America in 1842 to 1848-ish. Right in the middle there, yeah. It starts in 1845, and then, yeah, 1848. And this is an America that is violently divided in a number of ways, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think—we spend so much time talking about the Civil War, right? Because the Civil War was such a tragic event, and so many Americans, because they were all Americans, died in the Civil War. And we talk a lot about slavery because millions upon millions of Africans and African-Americans who were born here into slavery had died. But we don't talk a lot about antebellum America and how long it actually took to ratchet our way up to the Civil War. And the divide was rancorous. I always find it vaguely amusing when pundits try to make the point that today we're more politically divided than we ever have been as a nation. And I think, well, uh, do you remember that part where people were shooting at each other on the Senate floor? And um, and then we had a war about it because, uh, it, yeah, it's a viciously divided nation. And part of that is because the economy of the South and the economy of the North were inextricably linked. The South produced the cotton. They sent the cotton up to the north to manufactories in places like Massachusetts, all over New England, New York City. They turned it into extremely cheap cloth. They did sewing outwork and cut work and um, then created extremely cheap slave clothing. And then they sold the slave clothing back to the south. So it was like a vicious snake biting its own tail. This is such a, a wonderful world that you conjure, and it's it's a great historical world. It seems so foreign and really so incredibly awful. <laughs> this is an America that just seems horrific in pretty much every way. And you begin in 1845 with the formation of the New York Police Force, which 
NYPD, I think of the Quinn Martin production and the lights flashing by and sure. the music synchronized. And, yeah. and we all love them. They're so great. That was not the case when they were first created, was it? No. Uh, the year 1845, three cataclysmic events happened. The first and the one that I wanted to explore, people often ask me, why did you choose 1845 for your novel? And the answer is, I wanted to write about day one, cop one of the NYPD. So if that had happened in 1827, then The Gods of Gotham would have been set in 1827. And if it had happened in 1854, it would have been set in 1854. As it happens, three crazy things happened to New York in the year 1845. First of all, the, the NYPD was founded, which is why the book is set then. Second, there was a horrendous fire that destroyed 300 buildings downtown. It was $6 million worth of damage, and we're talking about 1845, $6 million, so that was a lot of dollars. And the Irish potato famine happened, and that was the first year where people started just... There had been Irish refugees previously, of course, because it was not a very pleasant place to live at the time. But the Great Famine really landed that year, and Irish were pouring into the city. Yeah, so it, it was a city that was divided against itself on all kinds of lines. It was divided against itself politically. It was divided against itself in the sense that they're the people who were already here, they considered themselves nativists, which is hilarious <laughs> if you've ever heard of a Native American, which, of course, I have. And, yeah, they were virulently against the Catholics. So it, it was a very divided time. And the police force, when it was formed... It was politically entrenched from the from the very beginning. Um, it had to be in order for them to even get it across. Previously, what you had was night watchmen, and they were practically on a volunteer basis. It was just a few. It was a token wage that they were given per night. But they had watchmen's booths and leather helmets, and it was considered really fun sport to <laughs> to knock over. The booth that the leather-helmeted watchman, you know, was standing in. And this was really not an effective system because there were 400,000 people in New York City before we had a police force, which I think is a figure that baffles a lot of people. But America, and New York in particular at the time, was still um, terrified of the idea of a standing army because New York had been occupied during the Revolution, and they still remembered that in 1845. I mean, your grandfather would have would have told you all about it. So, yeah, they had a deep mistrust of any sort of standing army. And they imagined that the police, if they were formed, would be inherently corrupt. Turned out they were entirely correct about that. However, it was still a very necessary measure to take because a lot of the people shouting that we didn't need a police force were actually violent criminals <laughs> Because it was very convenient for them that we didn't have a police force. So, you know, there were arguments on both sides. Now, uh, the arc of these three books, <clears throat> and I, I recommend that everybody start with The Gods of Gotham and read Seven for a Secret and then the latest one, Fatal Flame. I would, too, because I think The Gods of Gotham, you would there's a lot of red herrings that would be dead fish. <laughs> If you read, if you read Seven for a Secret, and the, I mean, you, they can be read as standalones, but they wouldn't ruin the Gods of Gotham. But there's there's a couple of false trails that I try to lead people up in the Gods of Gotham that I think would be quite wrecked if you were to read the other two first. 
Now, uh, I think you, that you do a great job of creating the world in this and creating the plot arc and carrying us through these three books is the character of uh, Timothy Wilde. He's one of my most favorite lead characters in books I've read for a long time. Oh, thank he re- you. You really do a great job of creating the hero, but I, I, to a certain extent, I think you do not follow the standard Campbell version of the hero creation myth. And so, were you? How aware were you of that deviation, and how did you pursue the creation of Timothy Wilde? There are a couple of ways in which in which you're absolutely correct and a couple of ways that I tried to make it just straight up Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces iconic. <laughs> so Timothy, in the beginning of The Gods of Gotham, he loses everything. He's in this fire that I just mentioned and his face is scarred. He loses his life savings. His oyster cellar where he works as a bartender burns down and he has no choice save to join the NYPD. So that, you know, the scarred hero, uh, someone once asked me, how did you come up with the idea for the facial scarring for for Timothy? It's so evocative and vivid. And I'm thinking about all the scarred here. I'm like, you have read Harry Potter, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not exactly, you know, I, I'm not reinventing the wheel on that one. Okay. But yeah, I really did try to take a different tack deliberately with a lot of the other things as you point out because that was that part was so iconic he loses everything he has to start afresh he's got a scarred face right i had always been obsessed with sherlock holmes and if you're writing a character of a detective they're going to be compared to sherlock holmes i don't care i don't care if you create a martian detective and the Martian detective is a little green dude who just happens to be very clever at solving crime, that Martian will be compared to Sherlock Holmes because Sherlock Holmes is, you know, the the template, right? So I had already written Dust and Shadow, which is a straight-up, in-the-classic-style Sherlock Holmes pastiche in which I tried to sound as much like Dr. John Watson as I possibly could, tried to channel the man. And... When I went to write Timothy, I thought, exactly how far away from Sherlock Holmes can I get and still have an independent hero figure and a hero figure who operates under his own code of moral principles? This was the first problem. I said to my husband, I was like, I I need this particular police officer who's investigating crimes not to be politically entrenched with Tammany because I want him to make all of his own decisions when it comes to the crimes that he's solving. How can I even get him on the police force in the first place? And my husband said, well, nepotism. So then that's how the brother was born, Valentine Wilde. And I was like, oh, well, this is a really good idea. Nepotism. Hello, Valentine Wilde. Now you exist. So that was the origin of Valentine. And then for Timothy, like I was saying about Sherlock Holmes specifically, Sherlock Holmes is extraordinarily tall. Timothy Wilde is five foot four. Sherlock Holmes is very cold and distant. Timothy Wilde is very sympathetic and, you know, uh, warm-hearted towards, uh, not that Sherlock Holmes isn't warm-hearted, of course he is, but he hides it quite well. Timothy Wilde wears his heart on his sleeve. Sherlock Holmes's heart is somewhere in the back of his spine, you know, like lodged there so that he doesn't have to show it to anybody. Like it's in his boot, you know, like right right at the bottom. And Timothy's is on his sleeve. Sherlock Holmes never has any romantic attachments. Timothy Wilde is desperately in love with Mercy Underhill at the beginning of the book. So I, I made a lot of decisions that were very deliberate in order to take him in a direction that was 
not Sherlock Holmes, that was a hero who could be entirely my own and just have his own life and still be a person of independent moral code and character. The world of 1845 through 1848, as it was saying before, is to our own historical, uh, you know, our, to people of our time, the people at that time were repellent. They were horrific. The conditions were beyond horrific. Beyond, and, yeah. And even though they exist in some pockets of society today and in some ways still, mm-hmm. some of these conditions still exist. Definitely. Uh when it's they're almost difficult to read about. In this book, you take a, a number of things from child prostitution to slavery mm-hmm. or, and, and to uh, women's rights. So you cover a variety of, of subjects that are, um, to our modern minds, very difficult to read about. But you, the layer of Timothy Wilde and the mysteries and the plot arcs provide us with a kind of cushion so that we can take in yeah. these very horrific events. And I'd like you to talk about creating that kind of cushion. How did how did you go about that? Uh, that's very interesting. Well, I wanted to be as true to the time period as possible, right? But um, they, being... You are. They seem incredibly <laughs> gritty. Make no mistake. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's very kind of you. I think that here's the answer to that question. If I, if I were to sit down and just write a graphic account of, in general, what was happening to people at the time period. If I were to quote George Washington Matzel and say that there were literally thousands of child prostitutes in New York City during the time period that we're referring to who had been orphaned or half-orphaned or just, you know, abandoned by their parents. If I were to write about the statistics of people who starved to death or people who had I'm not even going to say inadequate housing, people who lived in basements with 10 other people and the basements weren't protected from the privies in the back. So you literally had sewage seeping into your house, that sort of thing. If I were just to talk about that in a general sense, I think that that would be deeply unpalatable. I wouldn't want to read that. (laughs) That I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole, man. But I think that what I try to do is I, is I make things very personal. So if they're about character and if they're about one person's struggle with this, if they're about one person's circumstances or a family's circumstances. So, for instance, in The Gods of Gotham, it's one person's circumstances. It's Bird Daly. Yes, she is a child sex worker. But her circumstances, and they're, they're so dark and so awful, but she is rescued by Timothy very, very early. And then the rest of it becomes about her and her life and her arc and how, how she comes out of that and how she's you know risen out of that situation and how she comes to terms with herself and a lot of the things that she went through in Seven for a Secret. The Wright family, Delia Wright and her sister, Lucy, it's about, it's not about People who are, it's not about everyone who is a free person of color who is being kidnapped and sold south. You know, it, Seven for a Secret is sort of the reverse angle of 12 Years a Slave. It's the people who are trying to keep that from happening, the sort of thing that happened to Solomon Northrup. But it's about that particular family, those sisters, and Jonas, the nephew son. In The Fatal Flame, it's not about 
every female who was abused doing manufacturing work. It's not about every female who was starving trying to do sewing piecework. It's about particular ones and about ways in which they cope and ways in which they find courage, ways in which they are clever enough to get themselves out of these situations, ways in which they're resilient, ways in which they just refuse to quit. And Timothy is, I think, such a sympathetic listener that telling these particular stories makes the grander scope of the god-awful conditions, I hope, a little bit easier to swallow. Story is a key element in these books, and it's Timothy's um, interest in telling stories that uh, results in the creation of the books because they're told right. in his first person, yeah. so to speak. So and he knows he's writing them. He knows he's writing them, right? So I, I that, think... that I, I should tell you, I stole that straight from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, this is a this is a um, you know a very good. This is a great trick, and I was like ACD. I'm just gonna snag that one. <laughs> so so ACD did this amazing thing. You what you want. If you're going to start a book, which is the story you were about to hear is true, right? Mm-hmm. Even if it's fiction. What Doyle did that was brilliant was that after the stories start coming out in the Strand, Sherlock Holmes is well aware he's being published in the Strand. That's kind of a meta thing to do. Oh, you know? yeah. That's very meta. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Holmes and Watson are having these conversations and they're like, uh, you know, talking about the latest Strand story. And, you know, Holmes is like, oh, God, are you writing another one of those? Oh, must you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Even though it makes me famous. So I stole that straight from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, that Timothy knows he's writing these manuscripts and that the manuscripts physically exist and they exist in his closet. And he writes them when he encounters cases that are so dark he doesn't understand any other way to process them because he's he's also an artist. He does charcoals because charcoal's really cheap. He can just find charcoal anywhere. So he does a lot of charcoal sketches to try to deal with things too. But um, when he finds himself uh, in the midst of a crime that he cannot palette, he will write these manuscripts, and by the end of The Fatal Flame, he knows he's written three of them, and I did something in which, you know, he does something with the actual physical manuscripts, um, and I, that was a hat trick that does not belong to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> shout out, Sir ACD. Thank you for that hat trick. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about the charcoal sketches he does, uh, made me think that, well, here's your entree into the graphic novel versions of these things which oh, would God. be uh i mean you can make it cool be, uh, yeah why not so have you, have, you, <laughs> have you called up dark horse no no i haven't yet but i do get i do write comics i guessed right for a wonderful comic that was eisner nominated mm. um last year called watson and holmes and watson and holmes is from new paradigm studios it is a series which is the modern harlem African-American version of Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, and it is outstanding. There is no wonder they were nominated for an Eisner, so I'm one of the people who guest writes for them. So, you know, I love comics and I love graphic novels, but, like, that's a really fun thing to do. Well, so not yet then. Not yet then. Yes, exactly. Well, you need to find somebody who can do Timothy's drawing. (laughs) I'll I'll just just call someone up real quick. (laughs) (laughs) 
going to do his sketches. That'll be the title sequence of the film: is Timothy's charcoal. Yeah. No. Uh, is is it? A, have these been optioned no, yet? I, no, they haven't. But. Oh, that's just shocking. I mean, I think that I think that it, it, the fact they haven't been optioned. I mean, like that's always an author's pipe dream, right? Mm-hmm. But it has something to do with what you were just saying about. First of all, it's very difficult to do period pieces. They cost a kajillion, bajillion dollars, yes. right? Okay, so you have to be really dedicated to that project in order to, you know, sink your toes into doing a period piece. It's hard to get them green-lighted. But in addition, I think some of those things that we're referring to that are deeply, deeply unpalatable, in my books, I can, I can use verbiage that provides enough tension and enough detail with what's not there as well as with what is there and i think in a visual medium there are scenes certainly from the fatal flame i wouldn't want to watch (laughs) on the big screen i mean you know there are things that happen in these books that that i think on the page i can use absence sometimes to get Mm -hmm. my point across and film is the opposite medium to books it because in a book the reader is doing a lot of the intellectual work oh, yeah. of providing um, what this world looks like, sounds like, smells like, tastes like, right? But in a film, you a lot of your work is done for you. It's a much more passive medium oh, yes. than, um, than reading is. And so I think for that reason, um, some of these social situations that are so desperate and so dire, I can write them without people throwing the book across the room and then, you know, stomping on it. <laughs> Whereas watching the film would maybe be a dire experience. We were talking about <clears throat> uh, Timothy's interest in story, and one of the things that I, the passages I find really interesting are the passages where he finds himself forced to write the police report. There's a police <laughs> yeah. report language which he says absolutely does not tell the story, right. which are these passages are embedded in him telling you the story. So right. the whole st- idea of story is really a- absolutely key in these books. I think one of the big themes, one of the most major themes of these books is storytelling mm-hmm. and ways we tell each other stories. The police reports that Timothy writes, the reason he can't stand them is because to him they are cold, dispassionate statement of the facts of the case and there's not any why and there's not any setting and there's not any context and there's you know it's it's x murdered y and none of the things that matter to Timothy and which is the actual people and their desires and fears and passions that's what he cares about they don't make it onto the page in the police report so he detests writing them because he finds them very reductive of the whatever actually went on. And I think he almost finds it insulting to consign people to paper that way because to Timothy, I think there's almost a certain mysticism for Timothy in telling a story about someone and actually writing it down, the act of writing it down. It has to do with all sorts of things in his character. He finds um, these particular light and shade in New York stories by Anonymous really compelling in the gods of Gotham. They're anonymous newspaper articles and, you know, like short pamphlets that were um, very salacious, but he thinks they're beautifully written. Are and those real? Were those Was there really a series like that? Uh, yeah, George G. George G. Foster wrote mm-hmm. them. 
Yeah, they were. There were actually a number of them, but George G. Foster was probably the most famous light and shade author. People would do these, you know, shadow and light metaphors, and then they would contrast scenes. So they would say, "Here's the little hot corn girl selling hot corn, and you know, she's she's happy and she's wandering the streets, and like, oh, here's the poor." you know, chimney sweep covered in soot, you know, wandering home. So they, they would do these contrastual, almost travelogues. They mm. really were travelogues explaining New York City to, to people who weren't from here. But for Timothy, he, he, this particular series that's, that's much racier than some of the other ones, but he thinks it's just gorgeously written, lyrically written. He loves them. And come to find out, Mercy Underhill wrote them. <laughs> so this is, this is you know, his, his major love interest. And they were written by Anonymous because she would have been in deep hot water, you know, <laughs> like if anyone had known that she had written them at the time. So storytelling to him is a profound act, partly because to her it's a profound act. She, she says something along the lines in the, the Gods of Gotham, how would Don Quixote, dreaming dreams like that, have any idea who he was if he didn't have a book to explain it to him. So, <laughs> which is sort of convoluted, but that's part of the, you know, sort of almost self-therapy that Timothy's doing when he's writing these books. And the, the way they contrast to the police reports is when he's writing the police reports, he has to write down the graphic, terrible things that happened without any sort of it's not that he needs poetry layered onto to terrible events. He needs some sort of there's no emotional affect. emotional uh, yeah exactly emotional affect yeah he he can't just have the dry facts in front of him because when the dry facts are in front of him, he just wants to you know like throw up on his shoes and leave New York forever you know? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm gonna go to Kansas <laughs> like you know like where there's nobody and yeah but I can't because I can't leave my my brother. So, um, and he hates, he hates New York. So. But he also loves it too. I think he loves, I think he loves aspects of it, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a conversation that he has with, with his brother's boyfriend (laughs) in Seven for a Secret, in which he's talking about how he can't stand New York. And Jim says, oh, I've always loved it here. He says, when I'm low I know that there are thousands of other people out there who feel just as I do. And when I'm ebullient and joyful, I know that there are thousands of other people out there who are singing in concert with me. I never feel alone here. And Tim is, he says, well, I've always felt alone in New York. And Jim says, of course you do. You were born here. (laughs) Because he's like, you can't, he's, because for Jim, it's being, it's like being part of a huge symphony. And for Timothy, he struggled to survive in the city for so long, being orphaned at such an early age, that, that he sees the callousness of it and the cruelty more than I think he sees the beauty of New York. Yes, he loves, he loves aspects of it. Other aspects of it, he, I think, says, let's just burn it down. All of it, like in the, you know, we'll get everyone out and then we'll start again. <laughs> I, there's a moment in The Fatal Flame where he visits the old brewery, which is one of the worst tenements and one of it's certainly the largest in the five points. This brewery was massive. I believe it's featured in Scorsese's Gangs of New York as a set piece. But he finds a group of women who are sewing outwork pieces. It was called outwork was when you weren't working in the manufactory, you were taking pieces home, finishing them, and then bringing them back. And these women are starving to death. It's a group of women in a room with no furniture, just piles and piles and piles of shirt cuffs, 
that they're sewing relentlessly. And these women, they would work 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day sometimes, just trying to get enough pennies together to get their next meal. And he notices that one of the girls has some scarring on the edge of her forehead and some fresh, you know, sort of marks as well. And he realizes that she fell asleep and she was so exhausted that she didn't notice when a rat came up and started nibbling on her face. And at that point, Timothy's just like, nope, we're going to start over. (laughs) This is is too big a mess. You know, so he sees all of these things as a police officer and and as an orphaned homeless child, you know, for all that time. And... Yeah, in ways in ways he loves New York. And in other ways, he thinks that it's so hard to survive in New York that it's a cruel city in a lot of ways during that time period. So that part of it, since Timothy is in no way cruel, that part of it he detests. We were talking a little bit about turning this into a graphic novel. One of the reasons you could is because Timothy has what you might call a superpower, although I think you do a super great job of making this complete, both completely believable, but a compelling power. What is that power, and how did you come up with it? That's a re- it really totally works. Which one? His oh. ability to get people to talk. Oh, okay. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Timothy, Timothy does have, have one... He's very observant, but you know, he's not the most observant person in the Mm -hmm. entire world. That would probably be his brother Valentine, I think, would be when he's not really, really high on morphine, probably the most observant character in the book. But Timothy, Timothy's ability to get people to talk to him was actually one of the most autobiographical parts of the book, because from a very young age, and I have no idea why this is. When I would walk into grocery stores, for instance, and I would, you know, I would be buying, okay, so I need butter and I need a couple of zucchini and then I'm good for dinner. And it's not really the case to do this culturally in New York, but in California, certainly when you say hi, you say, how are you immediately, right? And I would find myself constantly grocery store clerks, hi, how you doing? Oh God, man. So my car, and then, <laughs> and then, you know, it's just my cat is sick, and that you know, and it would just be the this story, you know, would would come out, and I don't know if it was because they knew I was genuinely interested in in people. My father is one of these people. My father's name is John Farber, and he's one of these people who can talk to anyone and does. He's a juvenile corrections officer. And he can talk to absolutely anybody. He's the guy who, when when you get in the cab, like, will not stop talking to the cab driver, whether they like it or not. <laughs> like, what you do? <laughs> like, like, where are you from? How are? How was that? You know, like, what kind of food is over there? Is your family still over there? Like, you know, all that kind of thing. And I don't know if that's where I got it or not, because my mom's also very, you know, sympathetic and gregarious as well. But God, the same thing happens to me constantly. I cannot get in a cab without the life story of the cab driver. And so actually that, I mean, for me, it's not a superpower. For me, it's just, you know, what happens every day. And I didn't even notice it, to be, to be frank with you, until a couple of friends on separate occasions pointed it out. And they said, why did that person just tell you, you know, everything about, you know, the 
the mortgage refinancing that they're doing. And I'm like, well, doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> and they were like, no, <laughs> not everyone does that. Yeah, that was actually based on, I guess, that's one of one of the aspects of Timothy that was very personal because I know what that's like for people to just sort of spill their beans. Oh, bars are particularly exciting for me not so much <laughs> well um no it's interesting i'm interested in i th- I, th- I am interested in people i'm genu- genuinely interested in people and i think that people are fascinating we're fascinating creatures and you know if, if you if you need to tell a story do it <laughs> I, I think that's very important I, I think it's important for people to tell each other their stories because you know if we don't it's just going to fester somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that I I never really thought of it as a superpower, but um, but he uses it to his own advantage as a detective, certainly um, to a great extent. I just can't get out of the grocery store as fast. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have a life in detection ahead of you. <laughs> now, you had mentioned uh, the tales of light and shadow, and then there's another very uh, one of the books within a, this book, but the other book that's really important is uh, Matt Sell's Dictionary, and yeah. this is a real thing. So you must have b- was getting hold of that. Uh, did that happen previous to your decision to write these books? No, it didn't. It it came about as part of my research. I love that dictionary. It's it's got a title and an alternate title. It's either called The Secret Language of Crime, we tend to call it now, or he called it Vocabulum or The Rogue's Lexicon, which is so 19th century sexy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, vocabulum? Come on, that's awesome. What happened was I was researching the early NYPD, and you cannot research the first copper stars without coming across Matzel because Matzel was the first chief of police, and he was really the guy who got this legislation pushed through because um, he had been a justice previously. And he was a social scholar. This guy was really modern for his time period. He studied why gangs were formed. He studied female birth control techniques. He studied all kinds of things. Like he was he was a fascinating individual. Like and, you know, like if you were to ask some people, they would have said he was a Tammany driven brute. And other people would have said he was an intellectual savant and he was a little bit of both. Like he had to toe this pretty fine line between keeping a city that was about to be a mob at any second, you know, keeping that city peaceful and the fact that he was genuinely like a social scholar. Right. So you're going to come across him inevitably when you studied the early police, which is why when the TV series Copper Star came out, Mm-hmm. from BBC America. Matzel is a character in that too because you just can't avoid the guy. He was he was awesome, right? He was like 300 pounds and like this just forceful personality. And he realized that the criminal element was speaking a dialect called flash patter, which in Britain at the time would have been called thieves cant. So it was essentially, a lot of it had to do with just regular everyday slang. But plenty of it also had to do with the fact that if you were planning a crime or if you were talking about anything sort of nefarious, if you were to use vocabulary that no one else understands, you're going to probably, even if you're overheard, have a better chance of getting away with it. Right? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I never thought about that approach, of course. Right? I mean, (laughs) this is very practical. It's like, okay, we got this secret code, guys. Like, you know, let's, let's 
call all of these all of these nefarious deeds um, by you know code words, and then other people won't be able to figure out what we're saying. So it was a distancing technique, and it was culture, and it was you know slang, and just the fact that language is organic. It was fascinating. So basically, when thieves can't arrived in New York City. It mixed with Yiddish and it mixed with, you know, uh, German words and it mixed with all sorts of other words that we had here and it evolved into its own version. So Matzel realized that his police officers, if they couldn't speak Flash, were kind of screwed <laughs> because <laughs> these guys are these guys are walking the streets and a lot to do with criminal detection during the time period and, crim- and crime prevention mm-hmm. had to do with just knowing your community intimately. If you know your community intimately enough and this shipment of chickens goes missing, then you're like, oh, man, chicken guy. Again, (laughs) chicken guide, you got to steal the chickens like every time. And then you go to his house and then you're like, there's the chickens Uh, again. But like they had to have a deep familiarity. And of course, I'm oversimplifying, but they had to have a deep familiarity with their neighborhoods. And if you couldn't understand the language of the people who were living there, then it would have been almost impossible. So Matzel decided to write a lexicon. Because he was also fascinated by language. He was fascinated by all sorts of things. And he was working on this dictionary until 1857, as a matter of fact, is when it was published. But that's why I have him working on it in Gods of Gotham, Seven for a Secret, and The Fatal Flame. Because he amassed this fo- this vocabulary, you know, Bible, over a period of years, I assumed. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if he was writing it, this book that actually exists, during these books that are fictionalizing him. So again, rather meta, but that dictionary is absolutely real. And it would have been maybe a little bit difficult to find, except for the fact that it is scanned onto Google. And it is, since it was published in 1857, anyone can look at it. So anybody who wants to look at this flash dictionary can just look up the secret language of crime or vocabulum, the rogues lexicon and George Washington Matzel, and they'll get to it. And there's a free Google ebook edition. Now I actually bought a physical one because not a real one, but they did a cheap reprint, you know, the sort of company that produces fascinating historical books that are out of copyright. So Mm -hmm. they don't have to, you know, mess with it. So they don't have to, you know, (laughs) pay for it. So I have a paper, a very well thumbed paperback copy of this dictionary. The tricky part is that it's a dictionary. So the syntax, he does he does provide a few, you know, sort of scant passages of examples mm, of entire mm. conversations. Right? But those are kind of in the back and there there's one about boxing, I think, and there's one about gambling, but they're they're pretty specific and they're they're scanty, right? So the flash pattern that's spoken in all three of these books is to the best of my ability, what it would have sounded like, but I kind of had to invent the syntax because the words were there, mm. but I didn't necessarily know in what context wow, people would have used them, right? Well, this is so. So I had that, you know, I, I had this incredible wealth of words with no real connective tissue. Connective tissue. So yeah, I invented the syntax of most of the flash powder that's spoken in these books, unless I lifted it from, you know, a chunk of dialogue that Matzel directly, you know, quotes, but 90% of the flash, the syntax is, is by me and the and the words are by Matzel. Well, it makes up for a really wonderful reading experience of a very clockwork orange and the 
world creation in this book is so intricate and so well done. I think that anybody who reads science fiction would really like this because the world is so foreign and it's so well crafted and beyond our ken that it you you really has that immersive feel. Now, this is a wonderful three book uh, creation. When you started the first one, did you know where you were going to end up with the third one? No, and that proved a tremendous struggle, as a matter of fact. When I started the first one, I knew there was going to be a second one because there was so much unsaid between these two brothers, right? Mm. Timothy Wilde and Valentine Wilde have a lot of baggage, and they unwittingly, completely by accident, had a lot of secrets between them in The Gods of Gotham, which are revealed at the end of The Gods of Gotham. I had to know what happened next with that one, and I actually sold a two-book deal from the get-go with the sequel because they wanted to see, after they had read The Gods of Gotham, my editor at the time was kind enough to want a sequel. Then I wanted to write a third one because I knew that the story wasn't finished yet. And when I was writing The Fatal Flame, one of the biggest challenges was that I didn't know if this was book three of three or book three of, you know, 12. I had absolutely no idea. And I'm writing it and writing it and writing it, and it's getting longer and longer and longer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if all the listeners, you know, like know what what word counts look like. But here's here's a good example. The Hound of the Baskervilles as a novel is like eighty thousand words long. When I finished the first draft of The Fatal Flame, it was one hundred and fifty thousand words long. <laughs> all right. So it was twice as long as The Hounds of the Baskerville. That's a good uh, reference point. So by then I wanted to die and I get to the end of it and the emotional arc was such that I knew it was the third in a trilogy because I'm never, I've promised myself I was never going to write a bad one. And I mm-hmm. didn't, and I didn't know from Timothy's perspective how I could make it any more of a coming of age story and a story about forgiveness. And, you know, the arc is really the, the relationship between the two siblings. Mm. And by the time I reach the end of the fatal flame, it's not that it's not that that arc is over. It's not over, but it has reached a point where for Timothy, he's really grown up an enormous extent in these three books. And by the time you get to the end of The Fatal Flame, I think that Timothy, as a man, is a better one. And I think that the relationship between the brothers, the amount of just, you know, admissions and forgiveness and, you know, all of that, it was profound enough at the end of The Fatal Flame that I, that I just, I wanted to stop writing books from Timothy's perspective thereafter because I didn't want to rehash old territory mm-hmm. when I had reached an emotional apex and having been an actor for 10 years professionally, that's kind of hammered into me, I think, three-act structure. <laughs> so it could be it could be the fault of my acting training. But three-act structure is just chunk-chunk in the noggin. So that's what happened there. I realized by the time I had gotten to, by the time I had written the length of two novels, <laughs> <laughs> I realized... That it was that it was the third in a trilogy, but I was really, really happy with how it ended up and proud of it. I love that these each of these novels seems to take on its own kind of internal problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a central issue for each of them, and they're separate, although they're interlocked, right. and all the issues wash across all three novels. Sure, but each one is clearly aimed at at a 
a different thing. The first one is mostly about the child prostitution. The second is mostly mm-hmm. about the free slaves. And the third is mostly about women. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about th- this most recent one in that why did women rise to the top in that in your queue then? Was that something that you had always wanted to, to do from the beginning? Oh, it wasn't it wasn't something that was specifically on the agenda, but um, I'll be honest with you, every single one of my books is inspired by events that are going on right this minute. That makes sense. So um, when I wrote The Gods of Gotham, which is, as you say, largely about child prostitution, but also about religious discrimination and intense religious discrimination oh. against Irish Catholics, mm-hmm. which is a huge theme in that book, that was during the time period that they were trying to build a Muslim recreation center down near the World Trade Center site. And the rhetoric that was coming out of these pundits' mouths was, I swear to you, identical in structure regarding Muslims as the rhetoric that was being spewed at Catholics. And I understand, you know, there's a difference between Muslims and terrorists, you know, and so they're not the same thing. So I was very upset because a lot of Muslim New Yorkers were really being, they were having a really hard time. And not just Muslim New Yorkers, but Muslim Americans all over the place were having a really hard time. And so this Irish Catholic theme I thought was so resonant. And I'm angry and I'm writing it. And I'm, you know, <laughs> grr. <laughs> well, this is a classic then, uh, science fiction externalization. That's, exa- that's exactly what it is. <laughs> it is, the, yeah, you could not be more correct. And then, and then when I wrote Seven for a Secret, which is about just grotesque levels of racial discrimination and, you know, the kidnapping of free African-Americans. It was during the second Obama campaign. And the amount of racist stuff that was being slung all over the television from, you know, like Tea Party pundits and from all sorts of, and, you know... It was grotesque. Well, yeah. And, and you know, whatever your your political affiliation, Democrat, Republican, fine. But you got to admit, there was a lot of racist stuff going on during the second Obama campaign. I mean, people were putting up terrible, terrible throwbacks to the 1960s Jim Crow, you know, effigies up in their lawns, you know, and this like as lawn ornaments. And, and it was deeply disturbing. And I'm writing and I'm angry. <laughs> and and uh, for the fatal flame, I, I knew I wanted to set the book a couple years after the previous one, because the previous one was 1846. So in 1848, um, I, I just wanted to show Tim Wilde had come into his own as a, as a copper, copper star a bit more, and that he now understood that he was actually good at his job. Um, I wanted to show him in his element more that he had been a very much, a, he's a huge fish out of water in the gods of Gotham. In Seven for a Secret, almost as bad um, because it's six months later and he still, you know, really has no idea what he's doing and he hates it. Two years after that, um, in 1848, he's aware of the fact he's good at this and he's kind of got the system down. And I wanted to show that context Mm -hmm. where he was actually um, pretty decent at his job. Well, he always was, but now he knows it a little bit better. He has systems in place. He has allies. He has friends on the force. He has people he normally works with. He has these things that they do. They have habits. You know, they have uh, they have a bottle of Dutch gin in his office that they sip when they're trying to figure stuff out. So, you know, I wanted to make that world a little bit more advanced chronologically. Right. 1848 was the year of the Seneca Falls Female Rights Convention. And when I discovered this, I drew the dots that I was 
and am very, very angry at the anti-feminist um, measures that are being taken politically at the moment in terms of, you know, depowering females' ability to control their own bodies, in terms of, you know, just uh, rape culture, in terms of all of these terrible things that still are going on. And this almost, you know, backwards, <laughs> like... Right. Yeah. We're, yeah. Right. Be- full reverse. Full reverse. Right. Like, you know, we've made all these strides. Let's just stop and maybe like go back a bit. Nineteen forty two. Yeah. Let's let's try that. Won't that be fun? Um, you know, let's not get me started on female health care in uh, parts of the South. Right. So, yeah, I was furious about all of it. And I am. So then writing that book became equally <laughs> An externalization of something that I was already angry about. As it happened, it was a just a, a rich time period in terms of exploring female rights because Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her equally insane friend, Lucretia <laughs> Mott, when they started this female rights, the notion of female rights goes back way further than 1848. Let's, let's be real here. Female rights as a concept, has probably existed since females. We've probably been raising our hands saying, excuse me, (laughs) Uh, this doesn't work for me. (laughs) So so that's been around a long time. In fact, if you read some quotes by Virginia Wollstonecraft, you would think Virginia Wollstonecraft was born in, you know, 1980. Oh, yeah. No, there's a a great new biography of her and her daughter, Mary Shelley, out now. And it's a wonderful book, but to read, read about the... Yeah. The early proto-feminism. It's right there. Yeah, it's sure. super modern. Sure. And, you know, you read it and you're thinking, wow, it said that then and we're, do we still have to say this? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Again? So it was, a, it was a really rich time period to explore because of the fact these manufactories were just starting to bloom in New York City. And previous to this half the city burning... You could have put them, you know, north of 30th Street, but some of these manufactories, like just large, large buildings specifically for manufacturing work, were starting to be built downtown because a lot of downtown had been destroyed. So the women who were working at these places were the most bizarre creatures to to any of the men who were observing them because here's these women who are largely women they're living in boarding houses. They're making their own money. They're spending the money however they want to. And a lot of them were doing it to send home to other places. Like, let's say they had parents on rural farms or, you know, a single parent who, a single mother who couldn't support herself, that sort of thing. Isn't that a familiar uh, trope from the current day? (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. So, yeah, yeah, you know, time... Time goes on, but uh, <laughs> it always Technology comes advances, culture not so much. Culture not so much. <laughs> round and round like a carousel on a fire, as my friend Casey would say. <laughs> so, um, so they, at the time, were very much persecuted by the, by, well, by everyone who thought, well, th- here's the things that these women were supposed to um, destroy. This is what was supposed to happen. So according to most people... A lot of men and, well, most men and a lot of women as well who believed in the traditional domestic model. These women were going to destroy the economy. 
because they were going to flood the workforce with unwanted labor when it was already hard enough for men to get jobs. Now, it was extremely difficult for men to get jobs, but the reason these women were looking for jobs was so that they didn't have to either sew 18 hours a day and still starve to death or practice the oldest profession, which was always an option. <laughs> so those are your options, right? Or um, bookbinding was one of the other things that women were allowed to take part in during that time period. You could... So, you know, here's, here's your options. Sewing, bookbinding oldest profession or you could marry someone and be dependent on that person because that person has the potential to get gainful employment and then you would still work but you would work like a donkey in your own home as opposed to working like a donkey you know outside the home and it was the fact that they were working outside the home and that they had autonomy over their wages and that they weren't being supervised by anybody that really threw everyone for a loop the other thing they were meant to destroy um okay so there there was uh, the economy you know, the ones i already listed the balance of the sexes they were supposed to destroy the institution of marriage I don't know how oh, many we're times. always destroying that. We're always destroying <laughs> the institution of marriage. I mean, like, the, the institution of marriage was going to end if women were allowed to work outside the home, right? It was over. Well, yeah, no, I mean. <laughs> marriage <it's>... marriage <laughs> is done. Like, and people, people are just screaming about this. Does that sound familiar at oh, yeah. all? So, again, it's one of those things, you know, that you know, and queer queer rights is very important to me so that's another one of the things where it's like do you, are you noticing a theme here folks <laughs> like, where we freak out about something and it's not actually worth freaking out about and the founders of the convention stanton and mott they put this convention together right they invite everybody they can think of all of their liberal abolitionist friends right and most of their abolitionist friends were appalled. They sure we should free the slaves. That's a different thing. Like freeing the <laughs> slaves is a good idea. But what's wrong with you having to have eight kids? Like I don't see a problem there. <laughs> like, that's always been, you know, the case. And in fact, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's father, Judge Cady said, I wish you had seen me in the sod before you did this foolish thing. He said to his own daughter, he's like, I would rather have been dead before you did this than to ever see you found a female rights convention. And he was a liberal guy. And this was very, very typical. Not even abolitionists would help them. You know who would help them? I find this very interesting. One of the earliest and staunchest, most famous allies of the female rights movement was Frederick Douglass. I was going to say the slaves. Yeah. Because Frederick Douglass knew what it felt like. <laughs> you know? He's like, excuse me. <laughs> I actually know what it feels like to be judged entirely upon my physicality. So since I know what that feels like, he was at the very first convention just defying everyone and saying, this is a great idea. I love it. And he even, you know, decades later... He would be the keynote speaker or the, you know, introductory speaker. One of the big famous, you know, people were featuring at this convention, right, when they were still holding female rights conventions in the 1880s. And he would get up and he would say very, very eloquently, I support this. I'm so proud to be here when I think about the history of it. And he would say a few words and then he would say, but I can't speak for women because I'm not a woman and I have no idea what they 
feel like when these things are happening to them. So I'm going to shut up now. (laughs) And I'm going to let them speak for themselves. Because that is the best idea. And no one could possibly tell you what this issue is about more effectively than these women. Here you are. (laughs) And then he would just get off the stage. I think that that's kind of brilliant. And or I might add a writer who is able to immerse ourselves in the visions of a variety of characters and give us a variety of views to which we would otherwise have no access. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been speaking with Lindsay Fay. Her newest novel is The Fatal Flame. It's the third book in what you will probably be called in some unknown future, the Timothy Wilde trilogy, yes. following on The Gods of Gotham, Seven for a Secret, and the final book, The Fatal Flame. Thank you for joining me, Lindsay. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.